The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 14, 1 to 26. The word of God speaks to us. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one after the other, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the mountain of olives. This is God's word to us. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. I missed you last week. Um, my family and I picked a fight with the stomach flu, and just each one of us, one by one, lost that fight. Um, and so I was up last week, and so I was uh, in, I wasn't up, actually. I was, I was up to be sick, which means I, I was down in bed, and I, I didn't get to be with you for, uh, for a Sunday. And so I missed you. I was praying for you, and I'm happy to be back. Um, so we're going to continue in, in Mark as we've read. My name is Dave. If I haven't had the honor of meeting you, I'm one of the pastors here. As always, I want to pray together, me for you, you for me, and uh, then we'll dive in. So Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that we would be able to see by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit, you would help us see the goodness and the glory of Jesus, and that we would be able to respond rightly 
I pray that you would help me help my friends see the good news in this text and, and uh, help our hearts just wonder how great you are, Jesus. We pray this all in your name, and together we say, amen. So I'll start by showing you a picture. This is a picture that uh, NASA took. I didn't take it. NASA took it. And uh, the line, I'm bringing it up because I thought about it this week. Steve Curry, you probably know this. I didn't know this. But that line that separates night and day on earth, the line that separates darkness and light, that point of contrast, it's called the Terminator, right? And you can, you can see it in, in real beauty here, just clearly that you have a portion of, of the earth that's in darkness and a portion of the earth that's in light. And I bring that up because it reminded me of this text today, that Mark, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's doing something to, to help us see things that are true about Jesus and what it means for us. And and he conveying to us, relaying to us in the early church, historical events is doing it in such a way that I, I believe, again, empowered by the Spirit. He's wanting us to see this contrast that you have two people in proximity to each other side by side, and yet one of them is standing in light. They're responding in a way to Jesus where it's evident that they are knowing truth, and yet another who's right there is across a line and they're in darkness and they're missing out. They're closing their eyes. They're running away from, from light. They find themselves in darkness. In a real way, there are like two really important and epic questions. Like what's the best thing that we can do with our life? What's the worst thing we can do with our life? And this passage speaks to truth to answer both of those questions. So let's look at the events of Jesus' life and ministry here together. And I just want us to explore it with two points. And the first thing I want us to see is a costly example of worship. To get some context in the first few verses, we see that, that the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the Pharisees, that this chapter has a dark beginning. The tone of Mark begins to change, and we see that these men are plotting to, to scheme a conspiracy to catch and kill Jesus, and they're wanting to do that not in conjunction with this feast of Passover, the unleavened bread. You can read about what the people of Israel are celebrating in Exodus chapter 12, but the bottom line is that it's really purposeful that what's happening here is in a time in the midst of the nation of Israel, they are celebrating a historic moment where God moved in power for their freedom. It's no accident that Jesus, the Son of God, is, is going to act in such a way that people are free. He's going to move with the power of God as the Son of God in a way that what they're celebrating was just a type and shadow pointing to. And so that's the context God's people are celebrating God moving on their behalf, and yet there are forces at work to try to catch and kill Jesus, and then this is what happens. In the midst of this darkness, a light shines. Verse 3, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you will always have the poor with you, and and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me, and she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done in that moment will be told in memory of her. And it's so beautiful. Here we are nearly 2,000 years later, like 6,800 miles away from where this took place. And we are what? We're listening to the gospel proclaimed through the word of God. And we are remembering what she did. It's pretty sweet. So as we begin to talk about what this woman did, I want to start with a question. And the question is this, what is worship? Was it singing? I mean, thank you, worship team, for leading us today. That was a really sweet time of worship. I love singing with y'all. Certainly singing is worship. Is serving worship? Certainly a lot of the time. I think worship, at the heart of the matter, is a right response, a right response to who God is and what he's done. I think that's a good definition of worship, a right response to who God is and what he's done. Jackie Hill Perry, um, she wrote this book called Holier Than Thou, How God's Holiness Helps Us Trust Him. And here's a quote from that book. She says, it is a scary thing to hear the truth and actually believe it as that. If through the power of another's resurrection, we actually decide to finally agree with God that he is the creator of everything and therefore has a claim on everything, including the heart, mind, and body, then we are obligated to give to God what he rightly deserves, our entire self. She goes on to say, If we are brave enough to actually believe that God is who he says he is, we are left with one choice, worship. If we're brave enough to believe God is who he actually says he is, the the only response to that is truly to worship. And that's a perfect description of this woman in this story. She believes who Jesus says he is. He is. She believes he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And then she responds in the only way that's truly fit. She worships. And so the question I first have is, like, I want to learn more about this woman. Who is she? There are parallel accounts of the story in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe in Matthew 26, and also in John, John's account of the the life and ministry of Jesus. John chapter 12 tells a parallel account of the same story too. And Matthew's is really similar to Mark's that, that Ashley just read for us so well. But John's is a little different in the sense that he gives us as an eyewitness who is there just a, a little bit more detail. And John says this. He actually tells us the identity of this woman. This is John 12, picking up in verse 1. John writes, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, 
where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So who's this woman? It's Mary of Bethany. And who is Mary of Bethany? She's, she's awesome. <laughs> Mary of Bethany appears all throughout gospel accounts. And one of the things that we learn is that she is, along with her sister Martha and her brother, probably little brother Lazarus, she's a friend of Jesus. They love Jesus. Jesus loves this family. You get the sense reading the gospels that their house was Jesus's favorite place to hang out. Imagine your house being the preferred place of rest and hospitality of the Son of God. Like, I want to be friends with this family. And Mary seems extra sweet in the midst of these brothers and sisters. She is incredible and wise. And we see that all throughout the Gospels. John 11 says, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And one of the stories that we may have heard about Mary has to do with her sister Martha. One of those times that Jesus is hanging out at their house, that Martha, the older sister, is uh, just trying to, to, to provide some hospitality. She's serving not only Jesus but guests. But according to Martha, Mary is not doing anything. She's only sitting at the feet of Jesus right? And, and me, like Martha, I would have felt the same way. She, she gets annoyed, and so she narks on her sister. She tells on her to Jesus, and she's like, Jesus, tell Mary to stop being lazy and help me, right? Some version of that. And Jesus says to Martha, 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 you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing, one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. So the Mary in this story, the woman in this story who is anointing Jesus with this oil is the same Mary who had the wisdom to sit. When there were other things that could be done, she had the wisdom to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible has to do with Mary and this family, Mary and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus. It's in the Gospel of John. And Mary's brother is sick, we learn early in the chapter. And so Lazarus is sick, so they send word to Jesus to come. And Jesus arrives four days after Lazarus has already died. And this is what happens. Let me read it for you. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the woman in this story who anoints Jesus, who who lives out this act of kindness and worship, It's the same Mary who Jesus cried with. And it helps us understand and get some context for our 
text in Mark today to, to, to know this story because it precedes it. It sets the stage for it. So we need to rem- be reminded as to what Jesus did for this family. And in this family, John 11, picking up in verse 38, after Jesus wept, then Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, By this time, there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him, let him go. Practical question. How do you say thank you to the man who raised your brother from the dead after he was gone for four days? A thank you note or a gift card, I don't think, cuts it, right? You evidently first have him over for dinner, right? Probably one of your relatives, Simon the leper, it says, a man healed of leprosy, theologians are going to tell us, scholars are going to tell us. You're going to host a dinner party for him. That's a good first step. But that wasn't enough for Mary. The occasion of this dinner is a meal to honor Jesus because he's raised Lazarus. But this is what Mary goes on to do. Mary came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head, Mark tells us. Mary brings this flask of ointment, pure nard. It may have looked something like this. We have a picture Alabaster, it's going to be the stone that's so white it, it would have been translucent. She could have held it up to a fire and seen how much perfume oil was left in there. And so she takes a jar, and it was probably designed in such a way that only a little bit could come out at once. And so she snaps off the top, so it pours out. And if you look at Mark's account and John's account together, you just get a sense that she pours it on his head, but there's so much that it covers his entire body, even down to his feet. And so we need to get a glimpse of, like, the the quantity of this oil. There's a lot of it. It would have been, as John tells us, a pound. So up to 16 ounces of this perfume, it was a lot like if you buy perfume or cologne, right, it, it comes in a small amount, half an ounce, a full ounce, maybe, right? You don't buy it in by the pound, and you certainly don't wear it by the pound. If you're a junior high boy, take note, right? Just a little, a little bit goes a long way. And yet there was a lot of this oil poured out an extravagant amount, and so the smell would have been incredible. We also need to understand the quality. It's not just that there was a lot of it, but it was, as Mark writes, very costly. The flower was made from an 
Uh, the oil is made from a flower that grew in northern India at the time. It's a spikenard flower. We have a picture. It's a, it's a pretty purple flower. So it was exotic and rare, hard to come by. So it was expensive. And that's why there's this protest, right? How costly. Well, these disciples are upset. They say, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Well, scholars can, can give us some insight to help us understand what's going on here, that if you're a day laborer at the time, if you, if you have a job where you're just working hard for a living, you're getting up early, doing some real labor, you're going home at night tired, for that day's work, you get one denarii. So this is, you know, you take a day off once a week. This is a year's salary for somebody working really hard, 300 denarii. So I think, just to be honest, if I'm there, I'm a bit scandalized. Like, whoa. That was, what, maybe in our context, $40,000, $50,000 just in a moment poured out on Jesus? Some scholars think that this may have been Mary's inheritance. It was an heirloom so costly it was passed down to her through generations, sparingly used little by little. Maybe the most precious thing that she owned, not just in its value, as far as a dollar amount, but it's meaning to her. And so she takes unquestionably the most valuable thing she owns, and she freely, freely, on her own accord, offers it to Jesus and fully anoints him in this extravagant act of love and giving and worship. And John's account tells us that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And, you know, of, of course it was. It would have been strong, I imagine. Now, thankfully, like, nard oil is not as expensive as it once was, and so I bought a little bit, and we've got, like, four diffusers going in here. So if you take a deep breath, you maybe get, like, a hint of something that's flowery, a little citrus. That's, that's the smell of Mary's worship. It's the actual scent. I mean, it's arguably one of the kindest things, if not the kindest thing anyone did for Jesus in his life. And yet, some don't see Mary's act of kindness as something worth celebrating. Verse 4, there were some There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii given to the poor. And, look at this, they scolded her. In the Greek, you know, that when I think of scolding, it's like just chiding. It's like, hey, don't do that. Tisk tisk. This is this is strong language here. Scolded, like one commentator said, we need to picture a raging bull, nostrils flaring, stomping the ground, right? Like coming after a matador. This is bad intentions. This is aggression. This is deeply held anger. And just imagine how Mary would have felt. She thinks she's doing something precious and good, and yet the immediate response from these disciples is attack and accusation. She could have been embarrassed, felt shame, felt foolish or confused. And John, again, giving his eyewitness perspective, he gives us some color in this story. And he, he's, if you take Mark's account and John's account together, John makes it clear that, that leading this attack against Mary was Judas. And if you get Mark's account, you, you see some guys are coming along with him, agreeing, chiming in, but he's leading this charge against Mary. 
Pastor Kent Hughes writes this. He says, Judas, with calculator in hand, a man who knew the price of everything and the value of nothing, instantly calculates the waste. And Jesus will have none of it. Verse 6, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. So Jesus comes to Mary's defense. So why does Jesus defend Mary's act here, her, her worship? What can it teach us about our own worship of God? What is beautiful here that Jesus sees that, that we need to see? There's more than this, but here's a few things that I think are helpful that I saw this week. First, I think what Jesus knows and why he's defending Mary's worship is first, this act of Mary is rooted in love. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that if we have the greatest gifts, if we give the most costly thing, if we sacrifice all but we don't have love, it comes to, it comes to nothing. And Mary's worship through pouring out this precious oil, actually, you know, more than just the fact that it was something that was precious and costly, that wasn't the most beautiful thing about what's happening. The most beautiful thing about what's happening in this moment is that it's just an outward expression and picture of what's happening in her heart and soul, that love for Jesus is overflowing out of her life, and that's pictured with this perfume pouring out onto Jesus. I was thinking this week of my youngest daughter, and she's kind of sadly gotten out of this stage, you know, because she's seven now. But there was a, a good season when she was six where she would steal highlighters from me and find sticky notes and write little love notes to her dad. And uh, which is like the sweetest thing ever, right? Um, and so it would just like, you know, have her name on it. Elliot and the E or the L would be backwards and then would just have a heart and say, like, I love you. It's like the only four things she could spell. I love you and her name, Elliot, you know. And she would stick it in little places for me to find, like under my pillow, and maybe I wouldn't find it. She'd come to me and be like, hey, have you looked under your pillow? I'm like, right? And those little notes, those little pieces of art were precious to me, not because I looked at them and thought, wow, she's a gifted artist, you know. Or she's a great speller, <laughs> right? But it was just a little glimpse of her love that she had in response to my love for her, the love between us. And I see that here in this story, that Mary's love for the Lord. Jesus sees that, and it's pleasing. He receives it as it is, an expression of love. Mary's worship is also putting Jesus first. That's why Jesus defends it. See, the accusation from the disciples is that this is wasted on Jesus, and it could have gone to better uses, namely care for the poor. And Jesus is going to say, no, she's done a beautiful thing. You're going to always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you won't always have me with you. 
And so just to say plainly, Jesus is not diminishing in any way the importance of caring for the poor. He's just talking about the order of priority and affections for his followers, the church. He's not telling us not to care for the poor. The Bible is saturated from beginning to end with charges to care for those in need. But when Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you, he actually is not like lowering that as a priority. He's holding it up to say, this is something that you ought always do. My followers, my church is always going to be called to continually care for those in need. But what Jesus is saying as we began singing today, is that the heart of the church is first and foremost, Jesus, you reign on high. The the first priority of God's people, the, the first part of our mission as a church is love God. The first order of business, if you will, for God's people is to proclaim his goodness and his excellencies to be people of worship. And out of that worship, good deeds not only can flow, they must flow. But, The danger is doing good things isn't enough at the expense of doing the one necessary best thing. And and Jesus defends Mary because her priorities are in order. Jesus healed people from their sickness. He fed people when they were hungry. And yet, He, we see throughout Mark, his priority was first and foremost to proclaim the kingdom. His priority first was to lay his life down, to to pay the price for our sin, to rise so that we can rise with him into newness of life through faith. Poverty is to be fought, but there are things that are worse than poverty. Imagine with me for a moment a, a neighborhood It's beautiful and gated and pristine. And there is no sickness in this community and no hunger in this community and no nakedness in this community. Yet in this community, there is disdain for the Lord. There is no faith. There is no knowledge of God. That's not heaven. That's just like comfortable hell for the time being. Jesus in Mark 8 says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? See, this is what we learn from Mary, that the church must and will care for the poor, but above all, the church is called to worship our one true great Savior, and our good works flow out of that. And then also Jesus defends Mary because her worship is sacrificial, And that's beautiful. Worship costs something. It involves sacrifice. Commonly, there's this Old Testament story that's referred to to give insight here where it's 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. There's a moment where King David, one of the most significant figures in the Old Testament, he desires to build an altar and worship at that altar to the Lord. And as king... When the man who actually owns the land that David wants to purchase to make this happen, when he finds out it's David, he, he just tries to give it to him. You, you just take the land. And, and David says famously, I will not sacrifice something to the Lord that cost me nothing. 
there were some guys that I was supposed to hang out with this past Monday and Tuesday. They were pastors from Philadelphia, New Jersey, and I didn't get to hang out with them. They were here visiting Frontline, and, like, I, I love people from the East Coast. They're so peculiar. Um, and, and I love these guys in particular. I didn't know them, but I love the church they're from, and I was supposed to spend a couple days with them. And uh, because I was sick, I didn't get to. But I had a plan, and any time I've gone and visited a church, uh, I always appreciate it when there's just some token of hospitality. So my plan was I knew these guys at home had left their wives for a week, left their kids to be here, and I thought a kind thing to do, you know, I was in bed sick, so I didn't do it. I didn't even get to see them. But my plan was to, like, give them, like, a small gift to take home to their wife which I thought was a really good idea, right? Like a candle. That's a safe gift, right? It's like, here, take this candle home, and it's just a gift from our church that you can take and pass on to your wife for the win. I'm, I'm hooking you up. But, but then I thought through the scenario, right? And I imagined if I was out of town and I brought Anna back a gift, and I, I brought Anna back a gift, and I said, hey, babe, some guy gave this to me to give to you. Like, she'd be like, cool, thanks, you know? But then on the other hand, if I said, hey, babe, I was thinking of you. You're on my heart, and I took time to buy this just to say when I was gone, I missed you and I loved you. Like, one of those is a greater expression of love, obviously, because it involves sacrifice. That's what David's getting at here. This is what Paul writes, talking about the Christian life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What we see in the actions of Mary here and coming out of her heart is is that really being a true disciple of Jesus means looking at everything we have and saying, hey, I don't worship any of this but all this is a tool to worship you. Our time, our gifting, our treasure. And so I, I think there is a moment here as a pastor where I could like call us to do that in a greater way, which is maybe the better thing to do. And yet I, I just feel called to maybe encourage you in some ways, that you wouldn't drift into condemnation in this moment and think, man, I stink at worshiping, but maybe, just maybe, I want to encourage you and say, hey, if you're a family here this morning and you're not participating in youth sports, although that would be something good to do on a Sunday morning, but you've said, no, we're going to lay that down as a family so we can come and worship, that's sacrificial worship. I think that's pleasing to God. If you have gone out of your way to serve somebody in gospel community this week that was maybe sick and you brought them a meal or that was discouraged and you took time to meet with them and pray, that's sacrificial and it's worship unto the Lord. If you have given this week to a church plant or to this church in such a, such a way that, that you, you spent money, you gave it freely, not out of compulsion, but cheerfully, that is sacrificial worship. Like Brianna said, it's a call to worship through giving. So maybe, just maybe, you, you stop and you pray in this moment. We all pray together. Hey, Holy Spirit, will you encourage me to see ways that I am a living sacrifice as I follow Jesus? And Spirit, yeah, convict me in ways that I can worship all the more. That's one. We see this light shine in Mary's life. And then we cross this line between light and darkness. We cross this terminator and we see... Um, somebody that looks like a disciple, 
But the second thing I want us to see is, is a counterfeit disciple. Picking up in verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, Jesus, to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will, we, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. They're prepared for us. And the disciples set, set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Let's just pause right there and just, there's a lot we could talk about, but let's just be struck by the fact that Jesus sees clearly everything that's coming. He tells his disciples, go here. This is how it's going to go. There's a way prepared for us. There's a room ready. Picking up. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they begin to be sorrowful and say to, to him, one after the other, is it, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man had not been born. There's a lot we can say about Judas, but let's just let this strike us. That as it's just resounding again and again in this text, he is a disciple. He's one of the 12. He's been with Jesus. He's seen and heard and experienced amazing, miraculous things. He's been eyewitness to wonder, and yet he betrays Jesus. And if we dig down deep to the roots of what's going on in his life on some level, we, as we dig, we'll see that he betrays Jesus because he's a counterfeit disciple. That, that Mary loved Jesus and she used treasure as a means of worship, but Judas loved treasure and he was seeking to use Jesus as a means to his own ends. Somewhere along the line, and I'm sure it didn't happen overnight. He drifted over time, surely. But over, over all, he began to look at Jesus as somebody who he could use as a means to his own prestige, his own power, his own position, his own influence, his own treasure. Yeah, this is maybe the Messiah. He's on his way up to build this earthly kingdom. I'm going to get in his proximity for my own benefit, not because I love him or believe in him or really want to follow him, but, but maybe if I can nestle up to him, it's going to bring about what I truly want. I want to use him for what I really desire, which is power and stuff. And we see that John tells us in his account of the story, Judas wasn't mad at all about that ointment being poured out on Jesus because he thought it was a waste because it could have gone to the poor. 
but he oversaw the ministry funds of the disciples. And John tells us that he regularly helped himself. He skimmed from that for his own benefit and pleasure. He was a thief. He looks on the outside like a follower, but it's revealed that he was a counterfeit. And Jesus says, woe to that man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so Jesus in some way is saying, hey, we've just seen Mary do the best thing. You can rightly see Jesus and rightly respond in worship. And Judas here does the worst thing. He's not a picture of worship. He's a picture of disdain. He refuses to respond properly in love. There's hate in his heart towards the Son of God, and he betrays him. And in a real way, like he is representative of just what we will all do without the saving grace of Jesus. To reject Christ, to to deem him unworthy of our love and worship, to devalue him, that's what Judas does here. But look, this is the good news. Even in light of how this passage seemingly ends in darkness and betrayal, like the light of Christ is shining, there's good news because Judas's betrayal isn't the reason Jesus is going to die. Remember what Jesus says. He says, she's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. He has again and again said to his disciples, I'm going to die. My life is going to be laid down. I'm going to be crucified on a cross. He's gone into great detail, and they seem to not be able to get it or not want to get it. Yet maybe, just maybe, Mary was listening by the power of the Holy Spirit, and she saw a man who had the very power to raise her brother from the dead after four days, but knew doing that act of, 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 of just power put him in a position where then the powers that be said, okay, we can't stand it any longer. He raised this man from the dead. He's too powerful. He's got to die. Mary saw the sacrifice, the love. She responded in sacrifice because she, by the power of the Spirit, sees the sacrifice Jesus is going to make. She's able to pour her heart out in love because she's experienced the love of Jesus. She's putting Jesus first because she knows that he is putting the will of the Father first. And and his first priority is to save sinners like Mary, like you, and like me. See, Jesus is not being dragged to the cross. He's marching to the cross. Listen to his words in the Gospel of John. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See, the cross is the plan of Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this truth is what we're invited to celebrate, to look and ponder and see who Jesus is, what he's done, and respond rightly. And that's what Jesus invites the disciples to do for the first time, come to the table. Verse 22, he says, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and, and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. See, if you're a Christian in this moment, you're invited to respond like these disciples, respond in worship. Respond in a way where we follow the heart of Mary, where we say, Jesus, you are more precious than anything. Jesus, your body was given so that I may have life. Jesus, your blood was poured out so that I can, I can come to the table and I can taste the sweetness in this wine or juice, the sweetness of your grace and celebrate. The, the table is many things and it's, it's a place of worship where we, we remember and respond rightly to who Jesus is and what he's done and we experience the real presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And if you're here today just exploring the faith. You're, you're just here to learn about what the Bible says and who Jesus is. You're invited to respond like Mary too, to say, Jesus, you are the most precious thing, to do the best thing that anyone can do with their life, to see truly who Jesus is and respond rightly in worship with everything that you have because he gave everything for you that you may have life. So if that's you, you can come and, and pray with somebody after, after service. You'll have friends up here. You can even pray right now and just say, Father, forgive me of my sin. Thank you for sending your son who lived for me, died for me, and rose so I can rise with him to newness of life. Help me have a life of, of worship and sacrifice, rightly responding to who you are and what you've done because you're my king. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and, and I thank you for, as just one person who's part of this gospel community, the, the ways in which we walk in the footsteps of Mary and reflect the heart of Mary, the ways in which so powerfully my friends worship, and I pray that you would grow us as people of worship, keep you first, and in love we sacrifice for you. And for my friends that are just here to to explore, who are seeking, that you're drawing, I pray that you would give them the gift of faith, that they would run to you and receive your grace and mercy in life. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said.